Crypto Medicus podcast. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Travis Nielsen. He obtained his PhD from University of Southern California in biology, and he's just talking about his life and his path to crypto medical. Hope you enjoy. Okay, everyone, welcome to Medicus Podcast, everything and anything related to healthcare. We have a special guest here. Dr. Travis Nielsen. He graduated from University of Southern California with PhD in biology. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. And from talking to you before this podcast, um, you told me about you have a PhD, which is actually very surprising because you look very young, by the way. Thank you. Um, I'm not, but thank you. <laughs> um, and you also have a small business on the side, which is very impressive. And so can you just kind of tell me about, you know, what were you doing before medical school and what was your life like? Sure. So um, I graduated from undergrad and then went to Vanderbilt for a PhD in chemistry. And about oh, wow. three years into that, mm -hmm. um, my mother who had breast cancer, mm. uh, it, it, um, it came back and this time it was terminal. They said she had wow. about six months right. to live. So right. it was kind of hard for me. I needed to go back home mm -hmm. to California to take care of her because my dad had to work full time to maintain health care benefits. Mm -hmm. And my sister, my only sister at the time, um, had two kids and then a third mm -hmm. one, a bun in the oven. <laughs> and so she couldn't really help out. So mm -hmm. I quit my program at Vanderbilt, moved back to SoCal to live with my parents uh, mm -hmm. for a little while took care of my mom. She ended up lasting 19 months, so a little bit longer than six months. But during that time, I realized I didn't really want to do a PhD in chemistry anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and although she did have breast cancer, what ultimately took her life in the end was an antibiotic-resistant infection. Wow. And while I was taking care of her, I scored a job in public health mm -hmm. monitoring the beaches in Southern California, which was pretty awesome. I got to go out, <laughs> yeah. and check the beaches. Good <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. Yeah, all the surfers I got to know. And, you know, I basically just analyzed pesticides, and, which was totally up my alley in mm -hmm. chemistry lane. And then I also got to check for bacteria in mm -hmm. the water. That's kind of how I got introduced to microbiology. And then when my mother got an antibiotic-resistant infection, which was pan-drug-resistant, meaning that there is no antibiotic out there that can cure the infection. Mm. That's when my interest in infectious diseases was peaked. Yeah. So that was uh, about maybe seven or eight years ago that I transitioned into this kind of infectious disease realm. Mm -hmm. Before that, I did kind of have a little stint in medicine of mm -hmm. medicine interest when mm -hmm. I was in undergrad, but... I was quickly turned off from that by shadowing the wrong types of doctors. Oh, okay. Specifically oh. anesthesiologists yeah. and uh, uh, surgeons, general OR surgeons. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, like, is it, was it the lifestyle that you don't like? Uh, you know, like I, I've told people before, if you have a plot of um, time on the x-axis mm -hmm. and uh, stress on the y-axis, <laughs> you see this <laughs> spike yeah. right in the beginning for an anesthesiologist when they're putting the patient under, uh -huh. and then it comes back down, there's nothing, and then you're taking the patient out of anesthesia, and then it spikes again. Right, right, right. So um, that just didn't really appeal to me. And okay. then the surgeons, uh, an anesthesiologist put it this way. He said that they're glorified mechanics. And <laughs> while I don't know, that seems pretty harsh. Uh, that's definitely not what I wanted to do. I was more interested in something more cerebral, which is right. why I went the research path. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. And so when you first decided to pursue chemistry in Vanderbilt, um, mm -hmm. did you expect 
to do some cerebral work after getting your PhD and just you know, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. I um, finished undergrad at 20 and started grad school right after I turned 21. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I chose Vanderbilt was because the undergraduate institution where I went to get my bachelor's in chemistry, which mm-hmm. is the University of California, Riverside, mm-hmm. there was a professor there from Germany who had a collaboration with a professor at Vanderbilt. And I had done some research in his lab. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a letter of recommendation for me. He was a physical chemist. Mm -hmm. And I ended up uh, kind of getting involved in a lab at Vanderbilt that was doing physical chemistry. It was actually biophysical chemistry. Wow. That's a lot of of science. It's all the interesting (laughs) science words, right? Biology, chemistry, and physics. (laughs) And uh, so that's kind of how I ended up there. I really didn't know what I was getting into, though. And Mm -hmm. it was a lot of basic science. Mm -hmm. Kind of felt like just adding a drop of knowledge to the, the bucket of science. Yeah. And... It wasn't very rewarding. Uh, it wasn't until I started getting interested in infectious diseases mm-hmm. when I was working in Southern California that I I researched a man in the area who did uh, work in a lab on finding new therapies for anti- oh. antibiotic-resistant bacteria specifically, uh, but also with uh, antifungals. And um, that's when I started to get on a path that I knew was more for me, mm-hmm. which was translational research. Mm. So a lot of people don't know what translational research is. Yeah, can you explain that? Sure. The way I like to put it, which was told to me by someone and was told to him by someone else, (laughs) is you know that you're doing translational research when a basic scientist says you're doing clinical research, Mm -hmm. but a clinical researcher says you're doing basic science. Mm. So you're kind of in the middle between basic science research and clinical research. Mm -hmm. We weren't discovering new molecules like a basic scientist would. would. Right. We weren't doing clinical research testing on humans like a clinical researcher would. Yeah. We were doing a lot of applying knowledge like a specific molecule can deplete the complement or mm-hmm. neutrophils or macrophages in a mouse, and then you can do all these different types of tests after you infect them and treat them with something like an antibody. Mm. So all these kinds of things are, it's all translational. It's helping you develop a novel therapeutic that you can then test in humans. So we do all that stuff and we say, hey, it works in a mouse, and then we hand it off to someone else, right? and then they develop it for use in a human. Yeah, and it must be, so I'm, I'm guessing you worked with a lot of animals? Mostly mice, but uh, I have worked with some some rats there way too smart. You do yeah. not want to handle them. You handle them once, and they will not let you handle them Oof. again. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. they hit you, like, emotionally. I mean, a lot yeah, of people yeah. who... Um, I think a lot of people who do go into uh, the research aspect that I saw, mm-hmm. like, they either do, like, just cells, just work with cells. Yeah. Um, In vitro, I would right, call yeah. Right. And then they don't really touch animals because they're like, oh, I, don't, I feel so bad, like, killing them and stuff. There are some people who are like that. There was yeah. actually a... Um, a woman who was in her 40s that worked in a lab adjacent to mine when I was at USC mm-hmm. who had been in that lab for something like 15 years. She was wow. a lab tech, and she wouldn't work with mice. She refused. <laughs> she still worked in the lab. She yeah. did a lot of the in vitro stuff and tissue culture yeah. or bench work, but she would never work with the animals. And uh, my PI from when I was back at USC would tell me, it's okay, I know that when I die, the big mouse in the sky is going to judge me and he'll tell me where I get to go. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, hopefully that's not true uh, yeah, for right, all the right. great sciences out there. Um, yeah, so and after working at the beach, you went to USC to in your PhD, right? 
Yeah, how, it's a how does that come It's a little bit confusing, yeah. actually. It's even kind of confusing to me. So okay. I was working for L.A. County mm-hmm. uh, Public Health, mm-hmm. and then while I was there, I started volunteering at UCLA. Mm. I was doing just kind of figuring out how tissue culture worked because I had never done that before. Oh, okay. Uh, and I was learning how they dealt with these infectious organisms because mm-hmm. they're, they're antibiotic-resistant or antimicrobial-resistant if you're dealing mm-hmm. with something like a, mm-hmm. a fungus. And they're deadly. They were clinical isolates mostly from people who died. Wow. So wow. you need to be very careful with the way that you handle these things, yeah. you know, blood-borne pathogens. Right. So. I mean, you get a finger prick, and it's just like you might have it. And something like that did actually happen to me at one point. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. A couple years <laughs> into my, um, my work there, I dropped a syringe into my knee that was MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, uh, which is a particularly virulent strain in mice. Uh, now, whether that translates into virulence in humans, I'm not sure, yeah. but it was an It's isolate. dangerous. I mean, at that yeah. moment, you're like, wow, I might have MRSA. I, I did actually take a while to say, you know, I'll be fine. I walked it <laughs> off a little bit, but eventually the burning and the pain, oh. I, I was like, this needs to get fixed right away. So I yeah. went to the doctor, got a prescription of vancomycin, yeah. and that took care of it. But uh, anyway, while I was doing some uh, volunteer work for him, mm-hmm. uh, his name is Dr. Brad Spellberg, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had an opening in his lab because one of his uh, lab techs was leaving to go to uh, USC to start a PhD program. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as I was volunteering there, he asked me, well, you know, you're doing a really good job in the lab. We'd love to have you here. Would you mind, you know, quitting your your job with the government, your cushy, (laughs) high-paying job with the government to come work in my lab? And I said, well... I was pretty hesitant. I knew I wanted to get back into a PhD program at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, But I said, yes, as long as the idea is to get me into a program eventually. And he said, of course, yes, sure. So I worked with him for about two years Mm -hmm. uh, and was applying for PhD programs at the time when he was asked. So at the time, he was an assistant professor or associate professor, and he was just an infectious disease doc and also an internal medicine doc but he was recruited by the person who was in charge of the L.A. County Health System to become the chief medical officer of the LAC-USC hospital Oh, as a big role. Yeah, right? that's a very so, high, a lot of responsibilities. Yeah, high-profile position yeah. at a big, uh, big hospital. It's actually the biggest public hospital, I think, west of the Mississippi. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a, something like... 1,400 beds or something crazy. But anyway, or actually, I think that might be the old hospital. Any, anyhow, uh, so we went from UCLA mm-hmm. to USC. Mm-hmm. And when I transferred over to USC, that's when I actually applied to their program, got into that program. And that's where I completed my PhD. Yeah. That's really cool. Like, um, it's a lot of opportunities. Um, and it, it's kind of interesting because you, you shared your story about your mother having that... Uh, antibiotic resistant infection and uh sadly she passed away but that kind of had in line with your you know academic pursuits of pursuing a phd in the similar area right and um it's kind of amazing how those two kind of just came together you saw an opportunity and and it and i commend you because you were first at first like a little hesitant right because you're like maybe this might not be the right path for me. Yeah. But eventually you took it, took it and then you got a PhD. At um, and how, how long did uh, the whole, well, aside from the first PhD process, mm-hmm. starting your second PhD, 
uh, how long did it take for you to graduate? I think a lot of people don't really, might not really know. I guess it would be about six years total. Six years. Um, yeah. I started in, uh, let's see, I think it was March or something mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. um, it was a weird start time. It was not yeah, a start it, time. Yeah. It was considered what you call a direct admit. It was not oh, okay. going, it was going, applying through the, the same route as everybody else mm-hmm. and interviewing in the same route as everybody else. But mm-hmm. because I already had, I was already working in the lab as a lab right. technician, right. Uh, they sort of expedited the process of starting, apply the research that I was working on toward my PhD. Right, and that um, completely makes sense because you yeah. kind of knew, you kind of knew how the lab was going, you kind of yeah. knew the equipment and everything. Right. And I already had three years or two and a half years of experience from of Vanderbilt of being right. a graduate student, albeit in a different um, uh, discipline. Right, right. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And one little segue is I also know that you have a master's. I don't actually hold the master's yet. I am in an MD, MPH program right now here at Stritch. It used to be that the public health sciences, the Department of Public Health Sciences was a part of the Stritch School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. But recently, I think it was actually January of 2019, Mm -hmm. uh, they split into uh, the Parkinson School of Health Sciences and Public Health. Right, right. And so technically it's two schools, but... Mm -hmm. It's a five-year combined degree program. Mm-hmm. I started it in fall of 2018, mm-hmm. and we'll finish in spring of 2020, or 2023, sorry. Huh. But at that point, I'll, I'll be given, uh, or I'll be awarded both of the degrees, the MD and the MPH. But that being said, I've right. already taken all of the classes required for the MPH. I've already done the, uh, the practicum, which is mm-hmm. several hundred hours of basically working in a public health position mm-hmm. and, or doing public health work. And I've also, the only thing I have left to do is what you call a capstone. So it's... Yeah, a capstone project. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, a capstone project. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, so you take all these degrees, right? Take your PhD and um, you're soon to be, soon to also have master's. Um, I guess... The question that I'm trying to lean towards too is, you know, at which point were you like, I think getting an MD would be? That's a very good question. And why on earth would anybody go into right. a PhD program and then... And then and a PhD program yeah. and then leave your cushy job, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, well, it would definitely was difficult to get used to making about half of my salary from yeah. the government position. But yeah. I got used to it eventually. Uh, actually, pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I was... Working in the lab where I got my PhD, mm-hmm. the PI of that lab, my advisor, he was an MD. He's mm. not a PhD. He has an MD. He was actually, he got like, he was summa cum laude from Berkeley. Oh. And then he was number one in his class from UCLA Med School. He is an internal medicine and infectious disease physician. He holds uh, accreditation in both of those, and he practices both of those. As a physician in Los Angeles County, there's a rule that was um, brought in, I think, something about five or ten years ago by then acting director of the Department of Health Services who said, if you're going to be a physician here, even if you're working in an administrative capacity, you have to have, I don't remember the exact amount of time, but you have to have clinical hours during the year. And it's not an insignificant amount of time. It's something like a quarter of your time you have to be a clinician. So he still does practice both as an ID and internal medicine physician. So being that I was working in his lab, on infectious disease-related research, he asked if I wanted to shadow him one day. Uh, oh. Yeah, and it never dawned on me that 
maybe being an ID doc <laughs> or a med doc would be different than being a surgeon or an anesthesiologist. So I shattered him, and I, I liked internal medicine. I thought it was really interesting, mm-hmm. but I also really liked infectious diseases. I thought that the whole consult thing, you come in and you give your expert opinion, it's completely cerebral. Mm-hmm. It's, there's really no hands-on stuff, which right. unfortunately leads to a very low... Uh, compensation package. You're not yeah. doing any kinds of uh, procedures, mm-hmm. so you're not bringing in a lot of money in terms of insurance or Medicaid, right. Medicare. So, or like going through cases, or you know, going to OR or anything like that. Right? Well, as it turns out, there are a lot of cases where you deal with surgical site infections, mm. uh, and sometimes an infectious disease will just eat away at a person and you have to get a surgeon involved to sort of excise that. So sometimes you do, you, you deal with so many different specialties. You deal with as your ID, as yeah. an ID doc. Yeah. Oh. So, cool. yeah. and were you ever, I guess, did any thought kind of go in your mind? I do. I did like PhD program. I did another PhD program. And then now I'm going to spend the next four years in medical school plus the Three years of internal medicine, whatever the Two years of fellowship. Yeah, I mean, did that kind of run through your mind before you... Oh, of course. The huge uh, commitment. And, I mean, how did you, I guess, go about that? Um, I mean, I knew that I wanted to do the the research stuff. And I do Mm -hmm. miss not being in it for all day, every day. Yeah. But I still have a presence in in research. Uh, I work as a contractor at University of Southern California where I do, I write manuscripts mainly for that lab. And I also advise on how to do experiments. In fact, we just submitted one to Science, which is under review, and another one to uh, Journal of Clinical Investigations, which is also under review. We just submitted them at the end of December. And so I still kind of have a bit of attachment to the science research there, but it's, it's a very fickle industry, academic scientific research. You know, one year you'll have five R01s, millions of dollars, you're flush with money and an army of lab techs. And then the next year you have an R21 with a couple hundred thousand bucks and you've got to let people go. And I just had a really hard time thinking that I'm going to be beholden to the fickle funding of the NIH. So that was the first thing that really got me thinking, you know, maybe this would be in my best interest to pursue an MD. But um, once I actually started shadowing physicians in internal medicine, infectious diseases, uh, emergency medicine, uh, primary care, I realized that the kind of human element of talking with the patients and taking care of people and curing them of diseases or at least helping them improve their lives is really very rewarding. And it seemed like something that I wanted to do. I mean, I got a lot out of taking care of my mother during her final years, but it was not, it was kind of bittersweet. There's nothing that I could do. Right, because she was diagnosed terminal. Right. That and I also don't have, or didn't at the time, have pretty much any medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. Even now, I don't have as much as a physician would need to practice, of course. But uh, So I'm really looking forward to that. The amount of training that's required for it (laughs) is a little... Uh, it's a little, to yeah, say the least. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that there's, there's a reason for it. You know, four years of medical school, quite frankly, I think should be extended to maybe five or six years. 
look at the end. You're look, going to fight a lot of people. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. That's t- fighting the whole system. But look yeah. at a PhD. It used to take four mm. years. Now it averages more than six. I guess so. Yeah. Now you're starting second semester of medical school um, around this time that we're recording. Do you believe that all the things that you have gone through, your PhD programs, all the work that you have done so far is actually helping you right now? Kind of manage your time maybe? Yeah, I think it has. Um, working in a government lab, it mm-hmm. was it was a cakewalk. I mean, I could do it with my eyes closed, mm-hmm. uh, with both hands tied behind my back sort of a thing. <laughs> it was just three hours of work for an eight-hour day type of a thing. So it was very easy to get lulled into this sort of easy lifestyle, get paid well, not really a lot of responsibilities, very low stress. And then to go from that into something like med school is a huge change. I didn't do it overnight, though. Right. Uh, going into the sort of lab tech position in the, at UCLA uh, was sort of a, a step up. I was expected to come in five days a week, plus sometimes on weekends and holidays. And I, w- I wanted to stay there to get the results. So sometimes I would be there from 8 in the morning until 10 at night wow. working because I wanted to know the answer. 14-hour day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and some there were some times where I didn't take a day off for a month where I'm just <laughs> like, I've got to get this out. i got to do it, you know. And that sort of work ethic, I think, translates really well into med school. So it, in fact, the guy who was managing the lab at the time who did his PhD at UCLA and had been a, a PI for 20-some-odd years or a co-PI uh, was working in this lab, managing the lab I was in. And he actually asked me one day, what are you, like, practicing to go to med school or something? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, but I think it has helped me kind of understand how to manage my time better. I, I don't really watch TV. In fact, I don't watch TV at all. I watched um, a few episodes of TV over the break when I was with my friend while we were traveling um, to Canada and back. But what I'll do is I'll watch a movie maybe that I – get off the internet and I'll yeah. watch it over four or five days. I will watch like a half an hour now while I'm eating dinner. And oh, then, and you break it up like it's yeah. kind of like a TV show. Yeah, oh. yeah. So, but I I don't consume hours of TV a day. I think the average consumer is is like four or five hours a day of TV plus all the other screen time. And so there's got to be somebody out there watching like nine and a half hours of TV a day to compensate for my half hour a day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all Law of averages. Yeah, right, right, right. But yeah, I think it's just using your time wisely. And the science stuff really interests me. It uses a completely different part of my brain. I'm rationalizing. I'm conceptualizing. A lot of these you know, med school classes, particularly anatomy, it's rote memorization. It's you just got to expose yourself to the word and the picture over and over until it sticks in your brain. And then you can purge it after you've done the test. (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of take it out. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. Um, So a lot of people who listen to this podcast, um, some of them are PhD students. So do you have any advice for them? Well... I, uh, there are a couple of PhD students here at Loyola, actually, that I spoke with uh, maybe a couple months ago who were sort of joking about going into an yeah. MD program. They, I could see in this one woman's eyes that she really wanted to do it, but it was just sort of this overwhelming, oh, my God, 
if I do my PhD, she's in her first year of the PhD program. Oh, wow. Right. Oh. So she still has all of her PhD, which is probably going to take her six years, plus the four years of med school, the residency, and perhaps fellowship after that. And is it really worth it? A lot of people just think about, well, I want to enjoy my life. I'm enjoying my life. I love learning about this kind of stuff. It's very difficult. I've always said I would, I hate learning, but I love knowing. I don't want to go through the process of learning things. I just like having. I just want to know. <laughs> I just want to swallow something and then. Yeah, the right. Or it's like the brain. Matrix or something like that, right? Just yeah, plug yeah. yourself in and download <laughs> it. Um, but uh, what this, what I said to this woman was, you know, if you really enjoy it, you can you can do it, and it won't be that bad. Medical school, it doesn't matter if you like medicine; it's not going to be an enjoyable experience the whole time. You're going to hate parts of it. It's going to be really tough, uh, but you can get through it. And so, and then there's another guy back at the lab where I got my PhD. He was actually in the military and he got a, um, an interest in microbiology because he was in Iraq. And the, this particular species used to actually be called Iraqi bacter because it was infecting a lot of these young men who had, um, trauma to their skin, mostly from improvised explosive devices, IEDs. And so they called it Iraqi bacteria because they were finding it in all these guys. And eventually they changed the name to what it should be based off of genus and all that. But um, he developed an interest in that in the military, came into the lab. So he's a little bit older than a typical student. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, but he, he was also wondering, you know, maybe I should go into medicine as well. And he wants to, but his, uh, now I guess this is, I think it's his wife, or they're, or they're engaged. Uh, she said, absolutely not. You are <laughs> not going through that because it's a huge time sink. Yep. And anybody who's in a relationship going through med school will tell you that, you know, med school's first, actually. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they might say that their loved one is first, but um, when it comes down to it, you have got to get through this program. And if you don't, it's all for nothing type of a thing. So... Um, you really need to be dedicated. You really need to be committed. But the advice I guess I would give to these people is you can do it. You need to find a mentor. That is the number one biggest thing to get into a good program, mm -hmm. I think. You need to find somebody who can shepherd you through this. You cannot do it on your own. Some people have parents who can do this for you. Some people find friends. I found somebody who we just clicked. The We have a really good relationship. He's a nice guy. Um, and we have a lot of things in common. But he... He's just one of these people who will, who will help you until you stop asking for the help. And oh. so as long as you're willing to receive and, and do the work that he tells you to do, yeah. he will keep giving you advice and helping you out. So he was very instrumental in me getting where I am. And I really cannot undersell the importance of having a good mentor, um, whether it's a PhD advisor or a family friend or whatever. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing. And in the end, you're going to look back at your life and you're not going to think about, you're not going to stress out about how difficult med school was, I don't think. Um, I guess, last question. Do you have any shout-outs, any people that you're grateful for that you want to... Yeah, there's one person in particular who, um, you know, without him, I would not be where I am, that's for sure. Without, without a doubt. I mean, he's sort of, uh, he, he's likened me to this movie Seabiscuit. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No, I, I have not heard of it. 
So there's this this movie, I don't remember how long ago it came out, but basically there's a horse mm-hmm. and a jockey, and they're both kind of, I don't want to say misfits, but the horse was just beaten down mm-hmm. and, you know, it never got a good rider, never had anybody who could understand him. And the, <laughs> the rider was, the jockey was kind of like that too. And the two of them met, and it was just this really special dynamic where you just needed, you just needed to to really find your stride. And that's, that's what I really needed, was to have somebody who could pick me up and show me this is how you do it. And I have the work ethic. I have the, the mental capacity, the, the intelligence, all the things that you, know, you really need to be able to succeed. And I think that there are a lot of other people out there who have that too. I don't think it's a rarefied quality by any means. But the rare quality is is finding somebody who can pick you up and show you the way. You mm. really need a mentor to help you through these things. Otherwise, you're just groping around in the dark and you don't know what you're doing. Yep. And that guy I've mentioned before a couple times is this chief medical officer of LACUSC. His name is Brad Spellberg, uh, infectious disease and uh, internal medicine physician. And I don't know how he does everything he does. I swear to God, that guy does not sleep. <laughs> You send him an email at 2 a.m., he will respond to you within wow. an hour. <laughs> it's just nuts. This guy <laughs> Always up. <laughs> it's the legend of Brad, I swear. <laughs> yeah, without him, I couldn't be where I am today, that's for sure. All right. Um, any last thoughts? Um, yeah, life, it's not a race. Okay, It does not matter who crosses the finish line the youngest. You know, um, my experiences have colored my understanding of med school differently than others, and it's not a race. It doesn't matter who's the youngest to graduate. It's not going to get you anywhere. You're not, it's not going to be, oh, you're the youngest. Well, then you get the position. In fact, it might be even the opposite. Oh, you have more experience. You know things better. So you have a, a better perspective than someone who doesn't have these kinds of experiences. So don't let age dissuade you from applying. I've heard of 40-year-old med students before. Uh, in fact, I heard about a guy in Ohio who was going to medical school at the same time as his daughter. Oh, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, I think he was a physician's assistant. And he had a kid, and she ended up going to medical school, and then he applied to medical school the same year, and they both started medical school <laughs> at the same time. So don't let age or something like that dissuade you. You could do it. Hey, thank you for coming on this podcast. And uh, if anyone wants to contact us, just let us know at medicuspodcast.com. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. This would not be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information of our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization. Thank you.